Welcome, and thanks for tuning in to the Watermark OC Church Sunday Message. Watermark is a generational community that is crazy passionate about starting a conversation about God, your relationships, and authentic love. If you're interested in getting more information, please click the link in the show notes for next steps. Thanks again for listening. It's our hope and prayer that this message would transform your life. Thank you, Bucky. Thanks, you guys, for coming out. I appreciate that. I was just picturing you in like a pink Dodgers outfit for the costume contest, and that was that's why I was laughing. I don't know why you guys are laughing, but um, yeah, thank you for that, and thanks for being here. We're, we're, we are. We're stoked and privileged that you come join us on a Sunday morning, join our church family. And um, so I, I'm thinking about as we as we're in this chapter today in the Flourish teaching series. And you, have a, you may have a study guide. If you don't have one, you can get one in the lobby. But the study guide is a mere image of what we're teaching on. And we're, and we're talking about uh, generational mentoring today. Generational mentoring. That's a church value. It's something we hope to see take place here at Watermark. And, and I can think in my life uh, over the span of my, my wee little life so far, uh, there's at least five men. I could name five men. I'm wondering for you, who are the people? Think about this question in your head. Who are the people that have influenced you or impacted your life? And for me, there's easily five men, a name off the top of my head. There's, there's Bill, Bucky, Mark, John, and uh, Tim. Bill, excuse me. <laughs> Bill, Bucky, Glenn, Mark, Tim. These are five guys. Bill would be my dad. That's my dad. And my dad uh, is a follower of Jesus, and he's also a founder of a company. He still leads that company today. And there was something that happened in my dad's life over the course of running this, this thing, this organism, uh, where he learned to, to the sovereignty of God. That's kind of the Bible theological term for God's control. You know, over those 30 plus years of the company has been around, he's seen not one, not two, but multiple economic downturns. He's been through multiple presidential administrations. And, and he'll come home and I'll ask him, Dad, what's the latest thing you're facing and you're up against? And he says, you know, Ben, it's, it's, it, it sucks. It's hard right now. But it's God's thing. It's in his hand. He could take it. He could give it. It's his deal. I remember that from my earliest ages. And that shaped me. That engraved something in my heart, the way I view the world, to know that at the end of the day, God, God's got it. It's his deal. It's his whole deal. And there's this guy, Bucky, uh, the guy who's just on the stage a second ago. He's my boss and my father-in-law. Yes, it's true. And uh, you ever have that moment? You ever have like a shoulder tap experience where someone invites you to something? Well, you could say that I had the, the shoulder tap experience of a lifetime because it's his fault that I got into church ministry, to church work. Not his fault, his blessing, his reward even, that I got into church work. And I found the passion, the absolute calling of my life to do this stuff. Absolutely. That was shaping and majorly, you could say, influential in my life. There was Glenn. Glenn was a guy who was a youth leader, and uh, he did music for the youth, youth ministry. He taught me to play guitar. But more than that, he taught me, he taught me to listen to the words and read the words, and come to understand the words that were on the screen. And it would be just moments into the first song before Glenn would just start to, the tears would just start to flow. I saw in Glenn not just how to worship, but how to be broken before God. To let the words sink down into your heart and just experience his presence with the vehicle of of music. And it's today why I, you know, I feel like I can come in this morning, and, and just be, no matter what, who is around me, next to me, front and back, side to side, uh, I can just come and meet God through the music. And then there was Mark. Mark was a, another youth leader. For six years, he was our small group leader. For six years, he didn't miss a Wednesday night. 
And, uh, you know, six years may not seem like an insane tenure for, for some, but for those six years, for junior high and high school years, those are the years you kind of want to show up for, you know, in someone's life. And he was there. And he let us just be teenagers. But he was consistent. And I, and I learned from even a young age that consistency matters in the lives of people. That was engraved on my heart. And then there was Tim. Tim is my uh, former boss and, and former lead pastor um, at the Crossing Church. And Tim showed me a lot about what I would just call disciplined integrity. Here's a man uh, who had the same thing to eat, you know, for every 10 a.m. break time. And, and, and worked out at the same time, 3.30 a.m. every morning he worked out. Um, he would tell you this. He said it from the stage. But Tim had a, an, eating, an eating problem at one point. He weighed over 300 pounds. He's my height. He weighed over 300 pounds. And so for him, it's actually a very big deal to learn this discipline. It's a very tough, gnarly thing. And yet, it was more than that. In terms of ministry, Tim would go into a meeting uh, with leaders or volunteers or on a Sunday morning, and he wouldn't compromise. He, he doesn't compromise. So I think about that as I'm trying to lead and learn to lead and learn to pastor folks. That's in my, his voice is still in my head. Ben, if you're going into this meeting right now and you're going half speed, if you're in this meeting right now and you're giving it half of your heart, you better check yourself because this could be the last meeting you ever have. This could be the last talk you ever give. And that disciplined integrity engraved something in my heart, in my mind. And so the question, you guys, the tension question, as it were, is, wow, that's beautiful for me, and I have this debt of gratitude to pay for these men. And I could list another five easily, all these wonderful experiences. There are countless others who are more like, Orphans almost. Orphans, literal orphans. They didn't have a spiritual father or, or a leader, a biological father or an in-law father like I've had. And there are so many. There are actual physical, biological orphans. Just take, for example, Orange County alone. It's about 3,000 kids under age 18 that are in the system. Foster care and adoption. Two-thirds of those, two-thirds of which do not have in-home care. It means that they're more likely in a, you know, an orphanage or, or a group home more likely if they're older. That was like from 2012. I can only imagine what that number is today. How many kids who have raised without physical leadership, physical mentoring and influence in their life? And then some of us still, maybe even in this room, are more like spiritual orphans. We've taken a wound. We've taken an emotional stripe on our backs. We've believed a lie. We were told a lie, and then we believed that lie all the way to the point of being a part of our fundamental identity. And in that way, we're emotional or spiritual orphans. We've bought this lie, and that's been engraved on our hearts and our heads. We believe those things instead of what God says about us. Like we just sung in that worship song that we are free, that we are a child of God. That God says that about you and me. If we belong to him, if, if, if uh, he has ownership over us, then there's no way that someone can say that about us. The lies and the wounds that we still carry. So there's a huge need. Suffice to say, you guys, there's a huge need to get this right. This generational mentoring thing. And so my goal today is to set a high bar. I want to set a high bar for biblical mentoring. Not just uh, mentoring, not just coaching, but biblical mentoring. And here's the big idea that I want to walk us through this morning. Generational mentoring. It's about the etching and the engraving. The etching and engraving work of God. He wants to etch away some of the idols and some of the junk, some of the wounds and lies. And he wants to engrave, in place of that, he wants to engrave the will and way of God instead. He wants to etch away those pieces, and then what will remain are the things that are of value. And that's the engraving work of knowing the way and the will of God. 
And so this morning, and I cannot recommend enough that you get your Bibles out now or throughout this week, and you crack it open to Deuteronomy, and you just read the first five books of even the Bible. The Bible's one book for visitors. Maybe you're here from the park this weekend. Uh, we're so glad you're here. The, book is, the Bible's one book with 66 books. And the first five are the history books, the law for what the Jews even today practice, right? It explains the history going way back when of these people. And in this passage, we're going to be in Deuteronomy 6. In Deuteronomy 6, what we have here is the Israelites, the people are on the edge of coming into the promised land. It's around, we'll say, 1500 B.C., you know, 15, 1500 years before the time of Jesus. They're going to enter into the promised land, and they're, and they're going to go into this new epoch of time. And so what do you do when you have a new epoch? You, 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 you celebrate. You commemorate. You, you're reminded, and you reflect. And they're being given an opportunity to do that with Moses, of course, the, the guy who God gave a little shoulder tap and said, hey, I want you to go do this work. As reluctant as you are, I'll be your spiritual father. I'll be your, your father to help you, point you in the right direction. And you go lead these people. And he, and he himself, Moses, he's on his last leg. And he's going to commemorate and look back and help the people maybe get some semblance of success as they go into this new moment of history. Here's what it says in Deuteronomy 6. Listen, Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, your whole being, and your strength. These words I am commanding you today must be kept in mind. You must teach them to your children. Speak of them as you sit in your house, as you walk along the road, as you lie down, as you get up. You should tie them as a reminder on your forearm. Fasten them as symbols on your forehead. Inscribe them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. So, to talk about generational mentoring this morning, I'm going to kind of p- pick this apart. There's so much here in just a few short verses. We're going to start in verse 4. Why is it so important for spiritual mentoring? Why is verse 4, yeah, I'm God. Cool. Thank you for the heads up. He is God. What is so important there that sometimes we miss? We, we often say, oh, the Jews, they're monotheistic. Great. The Christian, the Christian life and work. They're, yeah, they believe in one God. You're surprised. But as we look at biblical mentoring, there's something so key here that I want you to see. First, first a quick qualifier. Mentoring. Biblical mentoring, as we use the Bible to define it, it's not just about advice. It's not just about coaching or counseling. Mentoring is not just about, you know, guiding someone through life's decisions. That's that you'll see, I think, hopefully this morning, that's not all that we're talking about. Mentoring, biblical mentoring, is actually helping people that we lead, our, our spiritual kids or even our biological kids, uh, I say spiritual kids, I, it's because I, I don't like the word mentee. I have a problem with mentee. I just, it sounds like I'm talking about a sea creature or something, okay? So I could say student or disciple. That's kind of what disciple means. It means a learner. So I could say learner, and I might use that term later, but most likely I'm just going to say spiritual kids. Those are the people maybe you get to mentor of whatever age or stage of life. You could be young in here. You could be mentoring someone who's a new believer, and they're older than you. It goes both ways. That's the value. We want to build a bridge at Watermark that we would not reach the young at the expense of the old, and we would not reach the old at the expense of the young. We want to build a unique bridge between the generations at Watermark and therefore raise up a generation of faith, of authentic faith and authentic love. And so we have this idea of what it, means, what does it mean to be a true learner. And we look at this passage in the very first line, verse 4, that he alone is God. Well, there's this issue, okay, that the Jews struggled with, actually. These Jews, about 50, you know, uh, 1500 B.C., they had this issue, and, and it's called monolatry. Say, monolatry. You guys are amped about that word, and I can tell, and that's awesome. I'm glad you brought your energy for this morning. Monolatry is this fancy word. This is what it means. The biblical study, it states this, that there are many gods, but only one God is worthy of our worship. 
of our confidence, of our trust, of our devotion. Only one God. This is where the Israelites would actually fall into. Think about it. Because we think normally, oh yeah, the Jews would have got that. One God. We understand. But look at the track record of the Jews, and you get, this is why you guys would only see this if you open it up and you go back to the history book and look at what the Jews went through. But if you, if you look at the journey that the Jews take, okay, how about before they're in the desert? They're in Egypt. And Egypt is the land of the gods, of idols, the god of water, the god of fertility, the god of, of the harvest. Pharaoh's a god. There's gods everywhere. They were in that system for some time. And then, they, and then they go into their trek across the desert, and they're this nomadic people. God takes them and frees them from bondage in Egypt and sends them into the wilderness, into the desert, even without a culture. Hear this for a second. This is so key, you guys. Because I think as Christians, a lot of times we say, oh, it's the culture's fault, and we're just in that Orange County culture, man. And it's the, that is the, what, it's the culture that made me do it, right? Okay, just look at the body of Israel as an example. They went to the desert with no people or places around, and what did they do? They created gods out of nothing. Do we remember? Moses goes up on the hill, and he's going to take the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets from God's finger himself, and he's going to bring it down, but he takes a couple minutes, and the, and the Jews get a little bit impatient, and they're like, he's probably dead, and they tell the first lead pastor of all time, Aaron, hey, Aaron, make us a statue of gold. We're going to worship gold. They created idols out of their jewelry. In the absence and vacuum of gods, we will create idols and gods. In the absence of culture, we will create idols and gods. The things that get our devotion and the things that get our trust and our confidence instead. Why is that so critically important? Well, I think you know where I'm going by now. But because those idols, those gods still exist today. The gods of money and success and stuff and fame and happiness and pleasure that we're up against every single day. So guys, in our mentoring relationships, what are we up against? Are we, are we, is it simple advice? Is it sound wisdom? No. We're taking down the titans and behemoths and, 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 the, and, the, and the monsters of distraction and temptation in our lives that come across every single day. And this is what I want you to hear as a quick side note, but it's completely relevant to biblical mentoring, to spiritual mentoring. That's what I want to use that word, spiritual uh, most of us in the room are believers, so you believe in the spiritual realm, right? We, like, we believe we're spiritual beings too, right? For actually, first and foremost, we're spiritual beings. And if you're new to church, maybe you don't have that lens yet, but you sense, yeah, I think I probably have a soul. And there's some things tucked in their desire, even an innate sense of hope. But where does that come from? Like there's more to this, this world than just p- punching in from the nine to five. So even if you're new to church, you can sense. And especially if you've been here a while, you sense there's a spiritual world, but sometimes even as Christians, As career believers, we forget that that's actually what's going on behind the scenes. So we are intensely and seriously spiritual ourselves and in a spiritual world. There's this box that is the known universe. That's the natural. We believe, if we subscribe to the Bible, that there's a whole nether spiritual realm. We see that from beginning to end in the Bible, don't we? It starts in Genesis. There was what hovering over the void, hovering over the deep, the spirit of God. And of course, for there to be a natural, there was a supernatural. There was something, someone that came before it all. So first book of the Bible, fast forward all the way to Paul, this great leader of the church. And he says again and again and again, he says that even you guys who are maybe non-believers, you have evidence from the physical world of the unseen world. He goes on in Ephesians to say that when you guys fight battles, when we fight battles, it's not battles against flesh and blood. I've often said, even when I've had conflict in the church with church personalities and church relationships, I knew I was never taking shots at that person standing across from me. No. 
There are intensely spiritual battles and issues and, and, and questions at play here. We have to grab that. We have to understand that that's the conversation at play. It's not just who should I date and marry and what job should I take. Those are not the mentoring questions. It's the question behind the question. Do the people that we lead, our mentees, our our students, our spiritual kids, our biological kids, do they grasp that? That it's not just those questions, that it's actually a spiritual reality. It's eternity that we're talking about as we lead people through these everyday issues. Okay, so... We have to understand that's the first issue, issue is that he wants to etch away. Recap. He wants to etch away the stuff that is the lie, that is the wound, that is the idol. He wants to carve those things away, and he wants to engrave something new. He wants those things to stick and to stay. So how? How should we mentor? Yes, it's great to talk about spiritual, but we live in this place. Well, that's what's so cool about the Word of God. It's insanely practical. It's experientially relevant. It has bearing for what we do, how we live our lives. So here he's going to get into it, okay? So this is back to verse 6 from uh, uh, Deuteronomy 6. This is what it says. And we'll get it loaded. Boom, there it is. These words I am commanding you, I'm skipping down to verse 6. These words I am commanding you today must be kept in mind, and you must teach them to your children. You must teach them to your children. So I've been using this word engrave. Say engrave. I'm going to give you one more chance. Say engrave. Yes, sir. All right. That's the big idea this morning. Where did I get it? Oh, I got it from the text. The word used for for teach is shanan. It means engrave. It means incisively teach. It means like drill, drill. You see, that's what I think is so cool about this word. I'm going to get hung up on this word for a second. You're going to see what it means for us as we are leading others and we are being led and submitting to the will of God ourselves. And God's using human beings to help us submit and learn the ways of God. He wants an engraving process to happen in our hearts and our minds. Here's what's so cool. In the the 15th century BC, they had this Egyptian method of carving the rock. They would etch the piece away and then they would chisel the word. The scribe would do this work and they would chisel the words. That's how they took notes. That's uh, 15th century BCE. Yeah, they're note-taking, all right? They had great tools back then. Here's the first awesome connection that I make with this, is that this is the work God wants to do with you as you submit to your mentors, your spiritual mentors, and the work that he wants to do in the hearts of those that you lead is the etching away of the junk, the stuff that is not to remain, and to engrave the things that matter most. That's the coolest thing. And, and look, at here's an amazing connection of what God does. The same thing happens if you went back, go all the way back to Exodus 31. We're in Deuteronomy. Go to Exodus 31 as as the tablets that I mentioned before, the stone tablets. How did he get those? Carved from the rock. Cut off from the rock. And with the finger of God, it says that that the, the Ten Commandments were laid out on this tablet. What I see God saying is that if you listen to my way, if you, can, if you can just trust my way for a second. It's not just about the boundary lines. It's not just about the sin scoreboard. It's not just about the do's and the don'ts. That's not God's way. He's trying to help us see that actually this thing will go well for you. That's, a, that's a, the way it's written in a lot of the Old Testament. It will go well for you. If you look at this model for how I want you to carry yourselves, uh, the Jews, Israelites, speaking to Moses and his people, if you look at this way, it will go better for you than your own way. It just will. Trust me in this. And so the wisdom of God's law, which is his word, to drill that and engrave that on our kids, spiritual and biological, it means putting your trust and your confidence in God's word. That's what it means. 
You know, when I think about that, it makes me think of Francis P. Shanahan. Fran Shanahan was my buddy growing up, one of my best friend's dads when we were in middle school, high school. And uh, Fran was, um, man, he was a pillar of faith in his own way. He was a quiet, humble, bumble, uh, lifetime banker. When we were in college, he, he died of cancer. And, and I, I can remember being so moved because he, he was a fixture in my life. He was so quiet and so reserved, but every now and then you kind of poke him like a bear just to get a rile out of him. He had four sons, and so they were just, they just terrorized him. It was ridiculous, but he was tough. He was a tough guy, and, I, and I, I'll never forget this conversation with Fran walking down the stairs one day, and I challenged him on the Bible saying, well, surely you've never read the Bible all the way through, to which Fran responded, um, yes, for sure, and several times over. You can imagine as a teenager, I was incredulous, like, What? Someone finish this thing? Are you serious? You should contact Guinness and get your name in the book, the other good book, because that's nuts. You did not finish it multiple times. I, was, I couldn't believe it. It took me another 10 years before I could read it all the way through because I learned the value of what's in there. And to have it engraved is not just to read it once, but to let it pour over and over and over in your minds. Because why? Because we're just like the Jews in 15th century BCE. We forget. We forget, and we're distracted, and we're so nearsighted. God bless us. We're so nearsighted. The blessings and the gifts from last week, where, where are those? I got needs and urgency today. God was onto something in having the Jews be reminded as they're about to cross the Jordan and go into the promised land, engraving of the word of God on our hearts and our minds to read and memorize and read and memorize and let it wash over, let our brains be conditioned by the word of God. You will know. You may come to know the will of God that way. Secret. (laughs) Spoiler alert. If you pour over the word of God, you may come to know the will of God. It will speak to you. That's crazy, right? That's a prominent question for our mentees out there. They're like, well, I'd love to know. Man, I'm so jacked up right now. If I could only know the will of God, then maybe I'd be okay. Are you in the word of God? You may come to know his will. Get some repetitions at seeing the way he's dealt with people over time. That's what we have in the word of God. That's crazy. If he's unchanging, if it's true what Paul said, he's the same yesterday, today, and forever, then you can see how he dealt with people and find out, man, nothing is new under the sun. There's nothing new with what I'm facing today and my issues and my problems today. So he etches away the stuff, and he's engraving something new with his word. And it means to incisively, incisively commit to teach and drill. As we go back, let's look at this. This is the next part, the next piece. Go down to verse 7. And you must teach them to your children and speak of them as you sit in your house, as you walk along the road, as you lie down, as you get up. What's he saying? You've seen this verse before. Some of you guys have seen this. You've seen Deuteronomy 6. I haven't even told you what it is. People know it as the Shema. It's like the, 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 the call to prayer for even a modern-day Jew. We know that. Awesome. Nothing I haven't seen before, Ben. But, but here's the practical application that maybe we've missed. You want to know what Moses is doing there, what I think Moses is doing? He's teaching us that engraving work is immersion work, to be immersed to be totally immersed. See, when I was in college, we had these immersion experiences. You could go away for a semester, and you could go and study, and you could learn abroad, and you could go on these trips. And my wife was global studies, and they had this mandate. They had to go away and serve for a summer, pick a country, do a research topic, and go serve. And she went to Uganda. And, and, and uh, together, we went to Peru. My semester abroad, I got to go to, to South Africa. 
Do you think that God had something for the shaping, giving me a spiritual lens when I was standing there of the cell of Nelson Mandela on Robben Island? Do you think that God had something to tell me about how the church is called to respond in our daily social conversations around politics and race and gender and all these issues flying around? Do you think that he was able to show me something about forgiveness from a man who sat in this five-by-five cell for years, got elected to office, and immediately called a meeting with his enemies? Do you think that God had something to shape in me through that immersion experience? And that he will for you and your spiritual and biological kids? Like I said, Riley and I, the other experience that we had together, our first one, we got married, and we decided it would be a good idea a week later to go to Peru on a missions trip. (laughs) It was awesome. So good. No one to turn to but your spouse. That's what I call immersion experience. So we got to know each other, and we got to trust each other. And we had this, our, our very first trip, Part of the work we were doing was these traveling medical campaigns. They would do dental, general medicine, OGBYN, and they'd set up shop at you know, a local school and they'd just invite people in. Like they t- set up a tent and just send them through. And our very first assignment was in the jungle, La Selva, they call it, La Selva, the jungle. Smoking hot, just wet. We're in this concrete rebar school. You better believe there's no central air conditioning, okay? No fans. And we're holed up in this classroom and there's a sign above the door that says extraction. Can you guess what work we were doing? What were we doing? Dental. Dental. And I'll never forget as I stood there with my hand on the back of these sweet old folks, uh, my hand on their head as someone would come on the other side with a pair of pliers and the ripping teeth out of the people's mouth. I don't know if they got sedatives or not. Maybe some people got a needle in their mouth, some people didn't. And I'll never forget the feeling of being in that room and holding that person's head and the sweat and the hair beneath my fingers. And it made me think, hang with me. Do you think that my worldview was shaped in that moment of an immersion experience? Do you think that God was there wanting to teach me and show me something about what Bucky talked about last week, about towel and basin service, to wash the gross and disgusting feet of those who are not just our friends, but those who are our enemies? Do you think in that moment I learned something about washing people's feet that would serve me all the days of my life? Well, we'll see. The jury's still out whether I can serve anybody. We'll see about that. But in that moment, that immersion experience, he was forming something, engraving something on my heart and mind that would serve me for all of my days. And the same can be true for you. You don't got to go to South Africa. You don't have to go to South America. Where can you go? You can go across the street. You can go across your yard. You don't even have to leave the county. And I'm telling you that in, in today's age of debates, and flame wars, and marches. I bet in two seconds of work, of walking across the street, you could settle it. You could settle that debate. You could settle that fight if you walked around in someone else's shoes for one day and just find out how the other side lived, how that might shape us. And that's an immersion experience you could do with your kids today, spiritual and biological. How much would that answer? How much did that solve in our social problems and our social conversation today? That's an example of immersion, and that's the example of engraving, which we're talking about today. So there's, a, there's, a, there's an awesome little bonus here that Jesus goes into as he finishes that I'm going to touch on briefly. He, he uh, Actually, let's see. Here's the, okay, we're not there yet. The very last part of the verse, it says that you can put them on your, verse 8, you should tie them around on your forearms and put symbols on your forehead. Fast forward those, those uh thousand years maybe and you get these jews right before Jesus' time and they were monotheists you better believe it they swung the whole other direction they were devout all right they were so devout that their idol was hyper religiosity hyper religion hyper success in the faith 
They were so hardcore, they would rock around. You guys have heard this word before, but they, the Teflon and, and, and phylacteries is what it was called. It was like boxes on their head and on their chest that was filled with verses and prayers. And that was supposed to make them holier than thou. And this is a heads up to us Christians in the room. There's a parallel passage with this verse in Deuteronomy right there. All the way fast forward to the time of Jesus. And this is what it says in Matthew 23. This is Jesus' words, his call out to those same hyper-devout Jews. This is what he says. He said to the crowds and to his disciples, his learners, his students, his spiritual kids, the teachers of religious law and the Pharisees are the official interpreters of the law of Moses. So practice and obey whatever they tell you, but don't follow their example. But they don't practice what they teach. They crush people with unbearable religious demands and never lift a finger to wash someone's feet, to ease the burden. Everything they do is for show. On their arms, they wear wide prayer boxes with scripture verses inside, and they wear robes with extra long tassels to show they're holy, set apart. And they love to sit at the head of the table at banquets to say, I have the important seat. I have earned this. And in the seats of honor in the synagogues, they love to receive respectful greetings as they walk in the marketplace and to be called rabbi. We have to teach our spiritual and biological children, you guys, to know the difference between rule following and authenticity. Because I think our God is much more interested in a believer and a follower who is real than is always right. I think our God is interested. Take this. You're going to be a leader. You're going to be, you're going to be, your life is going to be a living example as you stand in front of those you lead and mentor. And they're going to be looking at your life. And they would much rather follow someone who's real than someone who's always right. And God will put his hand of blessing on that type of leadership because it will engrave something in the hands and the minds and the hearts of those who follow you, who come after you. This generation of faith that comes after us. That's not immersion, by the way. Quick heads up, we're talking about immersion experiences. You can have a real-life, tangible experience. He gives, a, he gives a polar opposite example. He says, that's not immersion. Why? Because they weren't in it day-to-day, hour over hour, week over week. Only when there was a show, only when they could make a public show of it, would they put their faith out there for someone to see and experience. That's not immersion. And that is a heads up. That's a cue for us believers today, where we are at in our leadership and our mentoring and coaching of the next generation. So you see, they were not into immersion. They were not doing the right engraving work by etching away the idols. They created an idol. They created an idol out of religion. We need to be engraved by the word of God, engraved by immersion experiences. And the last thing you need as spiritual children is to see this, is if you belong to the Lord, if you're being conformed to the likeness of the Son, remember Romans 8 two weeks ago? It's the whole point of our existence. Be day over day, week over week, to be conformed to the likeness of the Son, to become more like Jesus. What would Jesus do? Great coaching for your mental relationships. In other words, successful biblical mentoring means students who submit to the will and way of God. That's what we're talking about as I end. As I wind things down, that's what I want to talk about. As the band comes up, here's what I want to show you. I want to show you a tool for submission of will. When you know, when you know and love his ways more than your own, you know that you're working towards submission of will. Because that's the question. As we, as we end, this is what I want to spell out for you. So often you're going to face that question with those you lead, with those you lead and those you have influence with. And you may not even know it, by the way. I just want to tell you, there are those of the next generation. I love the way one author put it. He says that your words are big in their ears. Your words are big in their ears. I want you to be reminded of that this morning and take full confidence in that reality this morning. Because maybe the lie and the wound that you've taken on is that no one wants to listen to that. 
Because I myself have heard it so many times. I know, you know, God calls me his children and he sent his son to die for me. I've heard it. Guess what? The person who needs to hear that word from you, your words are big in their ears. And you could have a play in erasing and etching away the wounds and the lies that they've taken. The wrongful identities that is not what God says about them. And so as you sit face to face with one of these people, they're going to ask that question. I wish I could know the will of God. And then how on earth do I do the will of God? Whoa. That's an important question. Are you prepared to answer it? This morning, so far up to this point, we've talked about knowing the will of God. You may come to know the will of God by being immersed in his word. You may come to experience the will of God by having relationships and deep immersion. You may come to know them and feel them. That's how you can know. Okay, that's the answer to how can you know. But how can you do the will of God? Here's the answer. You have to come. You have to be reverted. You have to go back to a childlike state. Okay? That's my advice. That's my advice. You have to be reverted back to a childlike state. That's what it means. Here's a beautiful last scripture to think about as you look at this. This whole thing about the law and obedience and God's chosen way, his preferable way, it's completely driven and motivated by love. Here's the proof. Deuteronomy 6, listen, Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You must love the Lord your God with your whole mind, whole being, and strength. You thought I was going to miss that, huh? You thought I was going to come up here and preach and not talk about love this morning. Come on. We're always going to talk about love. It's the church. That's gospel presentation. We're going to talk about love. But guess what? It wasn't a romantical, emotional type of love. It was a love. The word is ahev. Ahev means like this obedient, loyal response. In Deuteronomy 7, the next chapter over, understand, therefore, that the Lord your God is indeed God. He's a faithful God who keeps his covenant. He keeps his promises for a thousand generations and lavishes his what? His unfailing love on those who love him and obey his commands. You guys, you want to do the will of God? We want to do the will of God. I want to do the will of God. I have to go all the way back to a childlike state. Become son. Become daughter. It's the most perfect illustration for this. There's a young man who's a, a friend of our, our church staff, and he's going through his sobriety. He's in recovery. He's recently gone past the 90-day mark of sobriety. I mentioned him a couple weeks ago, which is incredible. It's insane. So good. Praise God. And I listened to a talk. Now he's being invited to be a panel to talk to other people who only have one week's sobriety. So God's using him, putting him in the game to etch away the idols of addiction so that they can have a new engraving done on their hearts and minds, that they're a child of God. And I listened to the words from the panel. He said two things that are so perfect that they will preach. Here's what he said. The first thing he said is that you have to be in a program because the, 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 the recovery community for me, they had my best interest in heart when I did not have my best interest in heart. Don't miss that. They had my best interest at heart when I myself did not have my best interest at heart. That's the definition of recovery. When you're in addiction, you do not have your best interest at heart. And someone has to come in and stand in the gap to have your best interest at heart. You know what that's called? That's called the cross. In the theological terms, we call it substitutionary atonement. Substitute. I have substitute t-shirts here. They take the place for a day. They sub in. And Jesus did that in the most profound way of all time with his blood that paid one time for all of our sins, for all of history and all of the future. He stepped in when we did not have our best interests at heart. Children, I have three-year-olds, they do not have their best interests at heart. And yet, me as their father, I have to. And God, as your father, and as a father of those you mentor, has their best interests at heart. That's a love reaction. 
That's the motivator for the whole thing. And then he said something else. He said a second thing. I'm going to end with this and we'll pray. And we're going to go into worship. That's so profound. He said, um, he was winding down his talk and he said, look at you guys, it may seem impossible to you to get out of the hole that you're in right now. But I'm at a, a point right now and I've learned a couple things. And one of the things that I've learned, you know, I'm about to be released from my program. I'm going to graduate, so to speak. And I have this opportunity. I can, go and I can go to live wherever I want. I could live in whatever housing arrangement, be free, be on my own. But I'm going to choose to go be in sober living. And he said, this is why. This is, why he, this is the why behind it. He said, he said, because I'm taking direction. I'm taking direction. You see, this is how cool God is. And this is how obedience works with God. God, being as loving as he is, he will not coerce us. He will not overpower us into making wise decisions and choosing his way. So therefore, if we want to engulf ourselves, take the example of addiction, and we want to go down that road, or even just take the example of the idols and gods that we give into every single day, if we want to go down that road, he will let, he will let us make that decision. He will let us lend ourselves to those lifestyle choices and those commitments to those gods and those idols in our lives. He will let us. He will not strong arm us because he loves us. That's a defense of love. But he outlines us, he outlines for us just like we sang before that his way, that he is a good father and his hand is extended like this to say, trust my direction and find out what happens. It will go well for you if you take my direction. Take confidence in my way. And you too can come to know and do the will of God. That's my prayer for myself. That's my prayer for every single one of us this room. That's my prayer for Brandon. That's my prayer for for you this morning. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you so much, Lord God, for what you did, that you stood in the gap, Father. Thank you, Lord, that you are my substitute for my wrongs, past, present, and yet to come. Lord God, I ask right now that you would take your proper place, that as we go into a time of worship, that our hearts and our minds would be engraved, Lord God. As we go forth in this week, that our hearts and our minds would be engraved with the truth of your word, with your way and your will, that we would not, you don't just leave us hanging, Lord. You don't just leave us hung out to dry. Your will is laid out. If we would respond, if we would follow direction, we would accept that free gift of love. Your way is laid out for us. Help us do that, Jesus. Give us the eyes to see, the spiritual lens for seeing what's going on, and help us be doers of the word as well. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that this message has challenged and encouraged you. If you need prayer, would like to join a small group community, or are interested in partnering with our work throughout Costa Mesa and Orange County, please go to watermarkoc.com. We would love to start a conversation.